Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. We've got a very special three-part episode for everybody. We know that there was mass demand to attend the Realignment Conference two weeks ago, but obviously 99.9999% of you all could not make it to Miami for a very great set of conversations. So here's what we're doing. We have taken our three one-on-one fireside chats. Antonio Garcia Martinez, he's been on the show before, fan favorite. Jacob Helberg, also been on the show as well. And then Mike Solana, also on the show as well, too. You could find their three episodes linked in the show notes. But Sagar, what did we talk about with each of them, starting with Antonio, going to Jacob, and then finishing up with Mike Solana? These three episodes are both good extensions of what we talked about previously, but there's a lot of new information there. I mean, with Antonio, what we really get to is about the internet and how it's just changed everything. And I know that may sound very broad, but attempts to rein in what we understand as the modern internet are almost certainly going to backfire because of the way that we know that information rapidly spreads and how that changes society. Antonio has a great articulation of Gutenberg, of the written word, about how analogous it is today to Facebook, how the censorship debates literally don't matter because that's not what we're actually arguing about and what the nature of the internet itself is in terms of a medium of communication. The same thing whenever it comes to Jacob. I mean, with Jacob, we talked about China. I know to some controversy, which was kind of fun, which we address actually there in the episode. But with Jacob, what we talk about is, is what does the new paradigm with China look like in a bipartisan fashion? That's actually probably the most important. With Mike, it's the same thing that we talked about on our episode, but we really delve into the more recent developments around San Francisco, around what exactly has gone wrong with cities, and why do Republicans suck at providing an actual agenda for cities that goes beyond any sort of national politics and has to do with, like, I don't know, public transportation. So I think these are all really awesome conversations. I think people are going to enjoy them. Yeah, and the last thing here, I want to pull out this segment from Mike's conversation. A lot of people really enjoyed Sagar and I talking about small p politics and what that yeah. really means. Right. Mike made this point, which has stuck with me ever since our conversation, where he said, vision. Just looking at the world and saying, hey, here are these things that we don't like. Here are these things that we do like. Let's make them something. Say what you want about Donald Trump, make America great again in 2015 was one of those things. And it's very hard, regardless of how you actually think about the specific parties, any of the issues, even look, even Andrew Yang, to actually know what the vision is. So that was a great note that everyone should really focus on. And, you know, frankly, we'd love to hear what people think about that vision. This is a key pivot to the last part before we get into the episode. One, we've got a Substack. Obviously, you can find a link to the show notes there. I'd love to solicit responses from folks who want to know, like, what's your vision? Think about these episodes. Like, what what do you think is a forward-looking thing that you should want for this country? Then number two, we've got a bookshop, obviously. Antonio and uh, Jacob have books available in our bookshop. Chaos Monkeys, and of course, The Wires of War. You can check them out there. Finally, the SOC conference was obviously sponsored by Lincoln Network. Lincoln Network. We had nothing to do with the shenanigans down in Virginia or any of those things. Nothing at all whatsoever. Really great time. And we hope you all enjoy these three sets of conversations. Let us know what you think. Enjoy, guys.
have a very interesting conversation with Antonio. Um, we were discussing beforehand, like, what are the topics? What are we going to basically hit here? And the reason why we invited him is actually the whole point of our show at its best, not at its worst, which we've talked about at the reception, at its best, we're basically trying to figure out how the world works by talking to different people who have different contexts, who have different backgrounds, hopefully through some type of different perspective. And I think Antonio, with everything he's doing um, at a Substack, the pull request, the specifically pull request, not pull request, hits all of that. So I really wanted to have, um, and Sagar as well, just a very wide ranging conversation that's going to hit the real diversity of subjects and speakers and everything. So I think I want to start off by focusing on the central idea that undergirds the pull request. It's in the about section. Um, politics, culture, economics are all downstream from technology. I kind of get what that means. I don't really know what that means. So let's just kick off there. Also, sure. you should notice we're wearing the same outfit. And uh, yeah. that says something about the this is also This is also true last night. So we're, we're solidly in the bonobos demographic, apparently, <laughs> from the marketing perspective. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the pull request, I'll, I'll start with the name. By the way, I'm not obsessed with articles. I only had to insert the article because pull request is actually a YC company. And I only realized this later. It's like I didn't do like the porn star name check when you name a kid. Like I didn't realize that there's actually a whole different company called pull request. And so <laughs> you indeed have to insert the article. Otherwise, you're going to get um, a, a DevTools uh, startup website. So yeah, so let's start with the name. So the pull request, this crowd, people are probably pretty familiar. Pull request is actually like a, a term of art in coding, right? It's when you're committing code to like, GitHub or any version control system, a pull request is when you're asking the main branch to pull from your branch and say, look, I made a modification to the code base, pull from me and integrate to the main code base. And symbolically, in my own little nerdy wonky way, it was an attempt to say, hey, wider world, like listen to us techies, right? Um, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm from Miami and I, I'm trying to hide it, but I'm just so flipped out at how much Miami has grown because I haven't really been back in 20 years. Um, and um, it's... Um, it's anyhow. Sorry, it's a it's a random uh, observation that I was sort of raised here and then went to San Francisco and lived a very different life. Um, but the, the the idea for the pull request thing is to actually try to span two different worlds, right? Kind of like Miami does, right? I I was raised by a Cuban family here in the United States, and Miami has become kind of the in, the go between two different worlds. And I think the Cubans who are very good at that. That was my aspiration with the pull request, right? Like how how is it? I, you know, it's funny. I already started pontificating before this thing even started. Um, how is it that techies, for example? get treated so poorly, I think, in the popular dialogue, right? How is it that, you know, I'm sure if you go to Houston, the petroleum industry like runs that town or Wall Street in New York, right? They don't have to deal, they don't have to grapple with local politics and that's like a problem they have to route around, right? Um, but somehow for tech it is. And it's really strange because you look at the top five companies by market cap, we're talking literally trillions of dollars of market cap, are all tech companies. And yet they get kicked around by both Congress and the SF Board of Soups, like as if, you know, it was like a little, you know, laundromat or something. And uh, Salon is here, right? I'm, I'm going to guilt him into running for SF, even though I think he moved to Miami. Um, but why is it that techies or just technology, either in the culture or in politics, haven't, actually, I think, impacted it? Of course, it has impacted it, right? But I think that that's just world history, right? Economics, politics, culture, religion are always downstream of technology. Um, it's just unusual that technology has become so dominant in our lives and they have almost no impact. Can I ask you just like an obvious yeah. follow-up sure. question? But I half mean in jest, but I also mean it seriously. Yeah. All the people I know on Wall Street, well, for, and you worked on Wall Street, yeah, firm, like talk to like a New York City traditionally conservative Wall Street hedge fund person, yeah. and they will tell you they get kicked around plenty, and their politics do not sync up well with the cities. So I'm, I'm just curious how and you actually come from that world really? too, even yeah. after Bloomberg. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, they got De Blasio after Bloomberg, so I think they, that, right. that, that, well, that okay. supports the. But okay, but 
Right. But but Bloomberg winning the New York mayoral, mayoral race is like, let's let's not get too wild. Mark Andreessen being mayor of, of San Francisco briefly, right? That would be incredible. So I, 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 yeah, sure. But on the relative basis, I think tech just doesn't have a lot of impact. And it doesn't mold the conversation about itself in any way, I think. So anyway, that, that's my aspiration in my modest way with my Substack to try to be that cultural interpreter. It's interesting because I followed you for a long time. I read right. Chaos Monkeys. Was, right. That was my original way that I was familiar. And all of a sudden I was like, man, this guy's tweeting about politics a lot. And then you became oh one know. of my favorite political pundits. I'm like, how does that happen? No. So let's explain here um, the trajectory of your career and why is it you found yourself um, now engaging on debates around Hungary and the right okay. when you have a technological background itself. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to get by by claiming I'm not a political guy for a long time so I can avoid all the flack. That's over, man. But I, I think yeah. it's over. I've yeah. got a piece coming out on the, the new American right or whatever. I think it's going to yeah. be over. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny getting back to Miami. There's a saying here that even even here, the dog catcher has a foreign policy, right? Because every everyone has to like have a foreign policy towards Cuba, no matter what office you have in Miami. I guess maybe <laughs> politics. I mean, it's it's kind of true, believe it or not. I mean, Suarez has a foreign policy towards towards Cuba. Um, yeah, I guess politics is in the blood to some degree. And again, I think it's just. Getting back to your point, politics is downstream technology and seeing the impacts of technology on, on politics, I think, are important. Some of the last reported stories I did for Wired was actually in the, in the Texas midterms in 2018, looking at the impact of ads targeting technology on politics, which we talked about a lot in that season. Um, yeah, I know. I guess it just lands us there. Also, religion as well is another thing that I'm getting into yeah. recently. Um, and I think, again, I think those two, our politics have become religion, which is always true in the United States, right? We are a creedal nation with a sacred document, defined by a sacred document, interpreted by this rabbinical court. And we argue, what is the nature of American life every generation, right? And that's, I think Americans don't quite realize how weird that is, right? So I, you know, I'm also a Spanish citizen, like continental Europe, you don't have, you know, debates on the order of the Protestant Catholic schism or whatever, or like the Orthodox Catholic schism every year, every time SCOTUS issues a decision that just does not happen in the rest of the Western world. And so I think there's been something particularly religious about American politics. And of course, you can quote Tocqueville and all the rest of it saying about how religious American life was and how much that undergirded civic life. And I think it still does. I think we're just not overt about it. But Coming from the tech perspective, then what do you think the debates we're having right now are? And how would you frame those debates? I mean, the whole content moderation Facebook thing has been going on forever. But I, you know, I, I felt like I pissed away years of my life on that whole thread. And so at this point, it's like I'm literally you went just, there. We we were not going to force <laughs> you to talk about Facebook, but you revealed your actual preferences. I'm literally posting links from like 2018 Wired article saying my opinion still stands. I'm still right. Just read me what I wrote in 2018. Like nothing has changed. Um, you know, and, and, yeah, I don't know. We can we can go down that road if you want. Or, yeah, actually, yeah. Like, let's actually go there. Like. Um, what so I'll say I'll start with a take of yours that really aged well, um, and this is actually the take of yours that got me beyond just being a fan of Chaos Monkeys. You wrote a great um, op, you know, piece in Wired about how the press was going to go back to the 19th oh, yeah, century, yeah. right? Yeah, how yeah. Um, there's this 20th century period where you really do have, and once again, like these people were kind of centrist, center left, but right. like they were moderate, like Walter Cronkite, Peter right. Jennings, and how if we treat all of our media as that as the default, like you're going to go crazy because that right. was. 5% of our actual history and we're right. going to see more partisan things that completely played out. So let's just keep going. Yeah, let me, there. let me review that a little bit. Cause I think that might be a little weird for most people who don't, don't look at me that way. If you look at, if you look at the past 50 or 60 years of media embodied by Walter Cronkite, which probably is older than, you know, I think that it's, you know, before even my time, but he used to end every transmission saying, and that's the way, it, that's the way it is. Right. And there's a famous moment when LBJ says, Oh my God, I lost Cronkite because Cronkite turned against the Vietnam war. And that was basically the end of the Vietnam war in the United States in terms of public support for it. That notion of like mass market media, the notion of reporting, the notion of, of fact checking, the notion that there's some sort of objective truth that the media should hold to, right? That is, um, 
That's a very post-World War I, World War II situation. Part of it's driven by economics, right? Macy's needed nonpartisan news to actually run things in, right? It didn't want partisan media. Up until about the very early 20th century, late 19th century, every newspaper was partisan, like overtly partisan. The Press Democrat was the Democratic newspaper in your town. And if you were a Democratic Party member, you subscribed to it. And if you were Republican, you didn't or whatever else, right? Everything was partisan, right? And so this notion that, oh my God, democracy dies in darkness because we're losing the, the form of media that has existed for a blip in time. I just, I just don't buy it, right? I mean, literally, go back and read the, the lives of the founding fathers, right? If Ben Franklin were alive today, he'd be in a non-account Twitter shit poster with like, 50, like 15 alts, and he'd have been canceled six times. And I mean, Sam Adams literally convened the Boston Tea Party in his newspaper office and then wrote about it, claiming he hadn't been there the next day, right? And you're telling me that like, if we don't have, you know, that, you know, the Washington Post reporting on the Republic, the Republic's going to die. Give me a break. I mean, it's just these people are just they're stuck in this little world and they don't quite understand it. But I, but I do agree that there is a danger to that. Right. Which is if you go back to the subscription model. And, and again, this has aged well because it's kind of come true. Right. The New York Times financially is actually doing very well, unlike many media companies. And it's mostly because they're driving subs. Right. Yeah. And as their own media reporter, Ben Smith, said, you know, it's not about reporting anymore. It's about compelling narratives. Right. That he literally that's a quote. That's a direct quote. Compelling New York Times is about compelling narratives. I'm like, okay, but, they, you know, they should be overt about it, right? It's no longer all the news that fits the print. It's the compelling narrative, which, but, but it, my last thing there is that that's fine, but it also, I think it creates a much more volatile political situation, right? Go back to the Ben Franklin situation. We had a, you know, a sitting vice president shot the former secretary of the treasury and then went back to office as if nothing had happened, which is what happened with Aaron Burr um, and Hamilton, right? So it's, it's, it was also a much more volatile and conflictual time than I think we're used to. One book that Marshall and I have been reading recently, which has been very informative, was about, it's called The Age of Acrimony. And it actually what's counterintuitive, we can be like hand ring around democracy and more. It turns out that during our period of most acrimony, of most hatred amongst one another in the post-Civil War period, before we actually figured out how to reconcile our questions, we had the highest levels of civic engagement ever. Right. And this is why I want to bring it back to the media question of, it's not a bad thing necessarily, is it, Antonio, to have like partisan media? We actually had higher news literacy at those times whenever we had partisan media right. than we did in kind of the anodyne Walter Cronkite age. So I'm curious, like when you say, you know, when we look at this technologically and its downstream cultural effect, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it value neutral? What do you think about it? Uh, I'd say it's a good thing, but I think. It, this time it's a little different, I, which I know is like literally the catchphrase to every failed venture yeah. in life. <laughs> no, this, this time it's different. Um, this, but this time it is different because even, <laughs> even, even in the age of acrimony, right, when, again, um, I don't know if people realize why Burr shot Hamilton. Hamilton had made uh, anonymous allegations about, I, I believe it was Burr's wife. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was literally an unaccount shit post that got him shot. Um, <laughs> You know, but in in that age, right? Like, okay, here's one of the things that flips me out, which might throw the conversation for a loop. But one of the things that's most freaked me out in the past hundred years is the decoupling of how information moves from how matter moves. Like bits and atoms now move in different directions, right? And again, I I know that sounds like well, obviously it does. Like, who cares? But you realize this country didn't even have time zones until the early part of the 20th century. It didn't matter what time it was in New York. Nothing moved fast enough for you to care about what the exact time was in New York, right? I, I don't think we've realized 
how we've hurtled down this road of instant information in the span of like a century, like three long human generations. It's really not been around for very long at all. And I think that's what the human mind can't sort of handle, right? The fact that I've got the eyes and ears of the world in my pocket and my eyes and ears are in the pocket of the world just changes things in a deep way. And this is, this is always my like objection to the Kevin Russes and Casey Newtons of the world that said that Facebook is ruining everything. The, the key example is WhatsApp, right? WhatsApp is like a simple messaging app, right? Which I, most people here are probably worldly enough to use it. Ameri it's not very popular in America, but it's like the app in Spain, Europe, everywhere else, right? There's no feed. There's no algorithm. There's no filtering. There's nothing. It literally is just frictionless sharing between groups of people. That's all you need to have, you know, excuse my French, a total clusterfuck in places like, you know, Brazil, India, wherever else, right? And I think that 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 is a problem. That is one negative aspect of technology that I think is one can be right to criticize, or that at least we're not we're not used to. And I'm not sure how you reconcile that because even in the world that you described with the age of acrimony, right? Like even then. Again, getting back to spanning two cultures, right? Most people's culture, their intellectual lives, their morals, I mean, their epistemology, how, how you consider something to be true was narrowed and, and, and delimited by their political community, by their language, by their culture. And that's no longer true, right? I mean, we talk about reds and blue states, but that's wrong, right? It's, it's actually urban blue islands in a sea of red. That's really what it is, right? And so like, even if you had a, an American Civil War, not that I think it's gonna happen, how would you even do the split? Would it, would it be between Miami and Homestead and like the, the rural areas out south there? What the hell's gonna happen between Sacramento and San Francisco? It's ridiculous, right? But that's the thing. We've decoupled how you live, work, your virtues, your, your entertainment, your culture from the little colored square on the map that says Miami or California, the United States of America. And again, I don't know how you put that back together. Yeah, thank you for noting that because there's a lot of like attempting to be based takes about like secession, like what is Austin? Like Austin is a blue, Austin's blue. Austin is, you know, so it, it, it actually doesn't, it, people are trying to impose like a 19th century framework on a 21st century dynamic, which is totally just missing. But um, I want you to talk more about the implications of the lack of agreeable truth, because it really, right. what frustrates me, and this is where I think tech can tell something to the rest of society. I think if you get to the core of the frustrations I have with like mainstream people um, who call for various forms of like, and I don't like the word censorship because I'm totally in favor of content moderation of some sorts, but I right. am angry about the version which basically says we know what truth is. Right. The job of us is to insert, do it this way. Yeah. How can they better conceive of the world? Because I actually think it's not even that they're yeah. bad faith. They actually just do not understand at a structural level what you are saying here. Yeah. I mean, again, that to me is the hard part. Like – We've never had truth, right? I mean, it, 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 the news has always been fake. I'm mean, sorry. If you, if you go back and you actually read World War II coverage at the time versus retroactive history, there was a massive gap. There was active censorship, by the way. Like, there was no free press. Like, the soldiers, soldiers' letters back were actually censored coming back from the front. Journalists actually have to have their stuff vetted. Even now in Israel, the journalists actually have censorship for their, for their coverage. And the government lied about the Yom Kippur War, for example, which was going very poorly. And so I mean, you can find lots of examples in which I don't think there's ever been a moment of truth. And um, like, which I know sounds very postmodern and almost Foucaultian and like, well, there is no truth. It's all constructed, but it's kind of true. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, just cite a local example because it personalizes it. You know, being from Miami, right, you have certain views on Cuba, okay? <laughs> and um, for 20 years, you're like the guy, the Cuban exile guy whose narrative runs counter to every lefty narrative about Cuba. <laughs> and you just realize you're living in like different epistemological universes where like people think Cuban healthcare is amazing and you come to a pharmacy here and they have an entire side business and ju of just sending shit to Cuba because there's nothing in Cuba, right? And so you're operating with two truths. One, oh, Cuba is this great socialist thing that at least has good healthcare. And you come to Miami and it's like, well, I, they have such great healthcare. Why is like literally everything being shipped from Miami? Um, but those existed independently. Like in some sense, I guess they didn't, I don't know, we didn't have to agree on Cuba policy because like what the hell, whatever. Um, you know, I'm, again, I'm not sure how you, f how you fix that. It does seem like we're actually quibbling over lots of truths that have, or tr statements of the world that aren't even important, right? Like 
something about like the illusory. What do you mean by that? Well, like, uh, the, well, just to cite a random example, the media cycle around Chappelle has gone on for approximately five times longer than the Afghanistan debacle, right? <laughs> and I'm sorry, like the whole Chappelle thing, like isn't even remotely as important in any real human or political sense, right? And so, yeah, I mean, what is the truth around Chappelle? Maybe, that, maybe that's not a question worth answering. I don't know. <laughs> Who cares, right? Um, I, just to cite a, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's a non-answer, but <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree that you need, you need a narrative script, right? Even startups, right? They have some vision of the world. Maybe it's wrong, but, but the fact that we all agree on it is key, right? And again, I, the, the news has always been somewhat fake, right? This isn't new, but I don't know how we arrive at a mutually agreeable vision of the future that at least is an action plan. It's a model of the world that we can use. I'm, yeah. So to, again, to tease out the, how is this different and to think about it, I mean, you know, the introduction that you've written about this, the printing press, right? right. It was the same existential level yes. threat yes. to culture, to the ability of all oh, these peasants, they're reading now, and yeah. now they have all these ideas and we can't control it. Obviously, we took took some time, a couple 30 years or so wars, right. in order to figure that out. I mean, is that just a version of what we're in? What yeah. is it even analogous or useful at all to think yeah, about? Yeah, no, I think it is. I and mean, I know it's totally cliche, but bear with me for a second. Everyone makes a printed press analogy. But the thing is, if you actually do a deep dive into it, and this was going to be the subject of my second book before I kind of wimped out and went back to tech, but whatever. I, <laughs> I, I did a lot of reading about the history of the printing press, which is actually not that well covered, actually. Yeah. Uh, the life of Gutenberg, very little is known of him. He died in total obscurity, by the way. He was revived by 19th century German uh, romantic nationalists. He, they don't even know where his grave is. Oh, that story end. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> let's not go there. Um, <laughs> um, but if you look at Gutenberg, it, it's completely analogous. He actually raised money with venture backers. He made, he, he made not a penny because he got booted as CEO and the vent and the, it was actually his venture backers who actually made money off the Bible. Um, the, the Bible was actually not as big a sale. Uh, the first thing that Gutenberg sold was actually Catholic indulgences actually, because he had to make money because that was that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, he was kind of a failed businessman, but he developed everything. It wasn't just a printing press. Paper didn't exist as we know it today. Ink didn't exist as you know it today. The way to mold, he was actually a goldsmith originally. He figured out how to actually make the typefaces that actually functioned in the printing press. The print, the printing press, yeah, he literally used wine presses from his part of Germany. That's, that was the least interesting part. It was all the rest that was actually interesting. In any case, so as a side note, if you, so, you know, he died, whatever. If you actually look at the first uses of what we now consider to be the printing press, the so-called Flugschriften, literally flying words is the, the name for it in German. You can, you can Google it and you'll find, they still have a lot of them in museums. They look like Facebook posts. It is literally some like outrageous photo of, you know, the Pope, uh, you know, dancing with a pig or something outrageous. Um, and then, you know, it, you know, it looks like an Alex Jones post. basically. And, and then some like caption saying the Pope does bloody blah, or, you know, some of them are like obscene, you know, he's yeah. shooting God knows what out of God knows where. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what it was. And then, and there's a note in one of Martin Luther's memoirs that um, when he, you know, he gets called to the deed of worms and he has to confront the electors and the whole thing. The news of his arrival got there before he did. Like he showed up and there's already flu shrift about his presence and they were already sort of monetizing and commoditizing the entire thing, right? Um, and it's, and again, the more you read into the analogy, the more you realize, oh my God, it's exactly correct. Um, random etymological note, does everyone know where the word propaganda comes from? <laughs> It's the name of the Catholic office that founded the printing press that was the alternative to the Protestant press. And that was, it was for the propagation of the faith. And it, it's still called that. Oh, actually, they changed the name. It's not propaganda anymore. It's bad brand. But, but, the office, <laughs> but, but the office still exists. There's still a Vatican press and has its origins in actually producing a counter narrative to the, the Protestant narrative. Um, and, and to get back to your earlier point, um, you know, I often ask the, the theoretical question, if you, if you had asked like a peasant in 16... Let's pick, let's pick 1618 out of, the, out of a hat. The first year of the Thirty Years' War, was a printing press a good idea? He probably would have said no, right? Because 
you, hadn't, you didn't have the Enlightenment yet. You didn't have antibiotics. You didn't have nation states. You didn't have democracy. You didn't have anything. For, for, for as much as that peasant could tell, for a year and a half, they'd had a year and a half of what we've had, a total political shit show in which every like elite institution is crumbling and everyone is flailing. And suddenly they're launched into the most violent European war until World War II, three centuries later. And that's what the printing press created in 1618. And I, and I think... Yeah, I think we're in the same we're in the same point. And there's no fixing it. There's no regulation. You're not going to push Zuckerberg to fix anything. It's it's. I think that whole cycle is just ridiculous. But that's anyhow. That's my personal opinion. You you've basically done this already, but um, from a low stakes scooplet perspective, could you just what were you going to write about in your second book? Oh God, that's so boring. I don't want to bore the people with like my second oh, book idea. It's there. like the most narcissistic. I can do it if you want, though. I mean, whatever. <laughs> okay, right. Do it. We're three okay. dudes on a podcast. It's narcissism is built in. Like, <laughs> just to come on. I, I, dude, I always joke that I'm not narcissistic enough for this job. I, I'm not really a narcissist. I just play it on the internet. I'd, I'd actually rather just stay home. I'd rather just stay home. But um, yeah, okay. So, um, I, so I think another thread that you can pull on that I think is interesting. Um, and, and Marshall McLuhan, if anyone's read all these media studies people from the 60s who were very prescient, I thought, um, is the difference between oral and textual culture, right? Like everyone here, I don't know if you also read that book by uh, The Weirdest People in the World from Joe Henricks that came out recently. It was also very good. Um, he basically traces the rise of what we consider to be Protestant liberal capitalism and the rise of the printing press. Um, so it, all of us here are probably super educated. We've all spent probably 20 plus years in school, right? We're used to, we, we read a passage about a tiger attacking somebody and our pulse races, right? It's weird when you think about it, right? Only humans attach so much importance to the symbol. You're, you're literally reading little black marks on a page and you have your adrenal glands go into motion and, and right, no other animal does that, right? And if you do that long enough, you literally start parsing reality through text, right? It, it changes the way you think. Let, let me flip it around. What, how does an oral culture work, right? Think about this. There's no way to look anything up. Right? Like now the fact that you've got all the information in your pocket, or I'm old enough to remember like literally going to the reference section of the library, like there's no way to do that, right? There, there is no truth, right? There, there, there is no reality that isn't parsed through a human mind and told to you directly and orally. Everything, everything is very agonistic, right? This is an oral interaction. Right? Like we're not debating that much, but you say a thing, I counter the thing, we go back and forth. Um, that's very different than writing, you know, a, a 6,000 word essay with citations, right? And so I, there's just a very different way of parsing reality. And I think the internet, there's not an, an idea original to me, to be clear, but the internet, I think, is taking us back to an oral mode of thinking, right? And, you know, I would turn around Marshall McLuhan saying, it's not the media that's the message, it's the message that's the media, right? I, I would say Twitter, even though it's textual, is actually oral, mm -hmm. and that it's, it's impromptu, it's ephemeral, uh, it's off the cuff. Um, and if you look at in my opinion, like the most pathological cases of social media, it's when you've got the worst sides of textual and oral culture together. So like Twitter is supposed to be off the cuff. Oh, I tweet a thing, it's funny. I got an appliance to South Africa, I come back, my life is over, right? Yeah. Because that was supposed to exist as like a random joke in a bar. <laughs> it was not supposed to be the target of fixation and searchable, indexable, as if I had written a book about it for all times and all places forever, right? So if you look at the way that our current media breaks down, it's when you're at like the nasty intersection of like textual, indexable, searchable culture, and then like oral Oral ephemeral culture. And so I think as a random prediction, because this is the sort of place where you bloviate with predictions, I think social media that replicates the true oral dynamics of life is a lot more humane, <laughs> frankly, and a lot more what, would be, what we'd be comfortable with. So I, I, I do think there is some hope here that we're going to start making things that resemble how we think about the world. I uh, want to tease that out, but sure. I do want to get to the one thing, which is that you said previously, there's nothing you could do about it. Like there's nothing Mark Zuckerberg, but yeah. then why, I mean, look, uh, I'm kind of calling you out. Why right. do you care so much and engage in so much of these debates around Because it's distracting censorship? because these journalists, I don't know. I don't yeah. know if there's any journalists here, but they're, I mean, they're, they're bozos. I mean, they're, they're failing, they're failing in their duty to, they're failing in their duty to inform people. Right. Mm -hmm. And not everything is zero sum, but human attention is zero sum. Right. Like 
Every day there's that guy who's getting canceled on Twitter. Every week there's that media cycle that turns on Twitter. I was it for a week. And, you know, that, I know what it is, right? It's, uh, it's one of those things. And if you're talking about, oh, we're going to regulate and, oh, we're going to figure out content moderation for 2.5 billion people who are posting literally hundreds of billions of pieces of content a day as if that's a solvable problem, then, you're, sorry, you're wasting our time, right? That's just not... That's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> this is a moral panic similar to going back and reading about the moral panics around trains and bicycles. Our faces were supposed to melt off if we went more than 10 miles an hour. It turns out it didn't happen, right? It, it's, it's the same story over and over. And the, the key element of someone in a moral panic is that they don't realize they're in the moral panic, right? Because they have no historical perspective, which ironically enough is exactly what oral internet culture is like, right? In oral culture, you're in the eternal present, right? There is no documented past. There's no notion of dates. There's any of that stuff, right? So it's just odd to me that the very, the very cognitive problems that the internet sort of presents is what's keeping us in this bizarre loop that I think we need to get out. I'll lean into your uh, idea of overusing the cliche of this time is different by saying, right. but Antonio, like this time actually is different. Like the internet, it, I, I feel like you're cheating by comparing the internet to riding a bicycle. Um, right. like, it, like at a conceptual level, right? So like the, that, that was a moral panic, but, right. but the internet actually at a scalable, very kind of boring level is kind of crazy. Yeah. That's um, great. Given what we're kind of describing, like, as you sure. said, like the, the time zones, like all these different things, whatever. So how do we sort through in good faith? Because I directionally agree with you, but how do we actually sort through moral panic versus actually, this is a different big, bad thing. And we need to think about it the right way. Uh, you, well, you start thinking, you know, you start thinking about generative visions of the future and not trying to, you know, recreate, some media verse where, you know, what Woodward and Bernstein are like the journalist fantasy of how journalism should work. It's like, I, I don't know. You think about the future. I mean, one of the things I noticed is that nowhere in the Western world, I, I know I'm speaking broad brushstrokes, but I think that's part of my job description here. Um, you know, nowhere in the Western world does any political faction have like a generative vision of the future, other than tech maybe, and, you know, crypto and biology and whatnot, right? Like they, <laughs> they definitely have wild-eyed visions of the future, or Mayor Suarez perhaps. Um, but who else is, I mean, basically your position on the political spectrum is defined by like what year you want to return society to, right? And if, and if, and if you're a trad, it's 1650. If you're like a conservative, it's like 1950. If you're an Obamaite, it's like 2008. But everyone just wants to set the time machine to a different number, right? No one's like, no, 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 hit the gas. Here's this vision of the future. Here's where we're headed. And I think that's a problem, right? And so, I, I, yeah, I, I, would, I would try to confront this problem by trying to figure out Facebook is not going away. The ability to talk to everyone on the planet is not going away, right? We're not launching some Butlerian jihad to drop a timely Dune quote and like saying, oh, smartphone, that's it. We're all going to throw them into the sea and live in some bizarre, you know, rustic, bucolic, whatever. It's just not going to happen. So, so let's just talk about what politics we have in a world in which that's true, right? Or, you know, what society do we have? How do we organize it? Like, that's what I would want to have conversations about. And I think those are, not that I have the answers, obviously, but. Well, let's think, have that yeah. conversation. Yeah, and that's okay. where I want to go down that lens of when you were alluding to a future social media and maybe one's better and more you know uses the power of technology but also emanates kind of the best of human oral culture so what does that look like yeah oh man you're asking me for solutions man yeah i'm just like a consultant yeah. i'm just yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> um again i think it's weird right because again it, it's hard to split the people that you associate with and value and get along with and the people that you're forced to run a school district with, right? Like that, that's exactly what we're seeing. There's a collision, right? I, I was just talking to Nathan, who's this political guy who lives in Virginia. He's actually in Loudoun County, which is where all these sparks are happening. He's pulled his, he's, oh, there, he's back there. Maybe I shouldn't be outing you. Anyhow, let's just say some guy in Virginia, doesn't matter who, um, <laughs> pulled his kids from the, you know, school district and stuff. Nathan doesn't look angry, so I'm okay. Okay. Um, and it's like, that's the thing. Like, how can you not make 
political like comity with people who are living down the block with you. Like, I think that's a problem, right? And again, I, I think it's partially driven by the fact that, you know, I get along with Solana, who I've almost never seen, but we chat all the time, or, you know, you or Marshall. And it's like, we don't even like, I don't even know where you vote, right? I, I don't know, like, we don't, we, we wouldn't form common political cause. I'm not sure how you reconcile that. Um, unless you go into like seasteading and DAOs, and that, unless you go down the, the Balaji route, you live in Balaji land, I'm not sure how you, how you solve that, to be honest. Which maybe, and maybe he's right, by the way. I, I'm not saying he's wrong necessarily. Mm -hmm. You said that in a very apologetic sense, as if he's watching. Well, no, no, well, because he's been right about a lot of things yeah, <laughs> in the course. past couple of years. Well, yeah, we have to have our thinkfluencer uh, to quote someone last night, uh, yeah. you know, checks here. But uh, let's, let's, let's keep going into your previous writing. Something Sagar and I have been increasingly interested in is like the small P politics. So how you perform in, once again, politics in a downstream from technology sector. And you also wrote a piece, I mean, I've read your stuff too much. You wrote a piece <laughs> about like how AOC was like demonstrating like a yeah. different style of um, political performance. And I think it's been fascinating. It's been three years since this happened. I would say AOC's project has been a political failure in the sense that no matter how many Instagram followers she has, no matter how how much genuine, organic, real like love for her there is, which she leverages through social media, no matter how many social media trainings she hosts for her fellow members, it, and I'm, I'm not attacking her, like she's, this is what she's good at. It doesn't go anywhere. Like Madison Cawthorn, like lame, like it's not going anywhere for him either. Like all of these hmm. young millennials who are trying to use the internet, how, and this is not me asking you for, asking you for a solution, but how, how do what does effective political performance given the internet look like now that we have three years of proof that AOC didn't actually fundamentally change the partisan gridlock dynamics. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm reminded of, um, Zainab to, to I don't know if you know, yeah, people are probably familiar with her. I, I, she was one of my early interviews for pull requests. I consider her kind of a friend. She's an interesting voice. Um, she wrote this book called Twitter and tear gas, which, um, she was very involved with the Arab spring and a lot of the things there. And, you know, she cites the fact that political organization under the conditions of social media are very different than previous examples. And I'm quoting her, by the way, in, in the interview. If, you know, if you look at the civil rights movement, which was obviously a very successful, <laughs> I think, social and political movement, um, you know, for like the, the Montgomery bus boycott took weeks and months of planning, right? And, you know, at the time, you couldn't just like not go to work. Like they had to get drivers to drive those people because they weren't on the bus. These people had worked together for, 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 for months and weeks. Like it, it was a whole process, right? And, it, and again, she was neck deep in these things. There. If you, but if you look at like this online organization and Martin Gurry gets into this as well, it spins up very quickly. There's a huge amount of enthusiasm, but then like no cogent political platform actually comes out of it, right? Like what did the Gilets Jaunes people ever want, right? They finally were hectored into producing a statement and it was kind of ridiculous. The, the, yellow. The, the yellow jackets in, in France. Um, and you can, you can cite a, a lot of examples in which, I mean, or, or even the most recent, the Cuba protests, which I wrote about a little bit about, right? It was interesting. They, they, <laughs> it was all triggered, by the way, by Cubans finally getting 3G on their phones, right? Like literally, that's, that's what caused it. Because it, it's a long story. I have a piece I'm worried about it. But internet typically didn't work like it does here. There, there basically was no internet, as we understand it. And then one day they turned on 3G and then boom, somebody uploaded a Facebook video and then, you know, the rest is history. But again, you know, there's, there's no dissident movement there. There's no, this isn't solidarity in Poland. There's no leading figure. There's no list of demands. There's nothing, right? There's like hubbub and fervor. But even assuming they win, as you saw in the Arab Spring, well, what happens? Nothing came of it, right? It's very different than the American Revolution, getting back to Ben Franklin. That produced a government and a constitution and a way of looking at the world. I don't know. I think there, there could just be something about, once again, this oral mode of thought that just does not end up in 
That's one of the things that, that drives me crazy. Right? If you look at the printing press, again, super destructive, but all the institutions that we live in, right, like the nation state is of relatively recent coinage. Like we think they've been around forever. The nation state, if we define it today, is an invention, right? And many nations, like Germany and Italy are way younger than this country, right? They were unified only in the late 19th century, right? Those were all inventions, right? Things like enlightenment thought, the encyclopedia, objective truth. These are all post-printing press ideas, right? And if we're going cognitively back to an oral world in which we live in an eternal present, those institutions aren't capable of being sustained, right? An, or an oral culture can't maintain a country with 330 million people that stretches from one coast to another. It just cannot. And I think maybe we're seeing a little bit of that degradation now. And, and yeah, I'm not sure what politics looks like after that. Because you can't just say, oh, federalism. Well, no, again, things don't actually break up by their little colored squares called states anymore. That's why I want you to think about, since you had a role in actually crafting this technology, is that, <laughs> is this a design, is, is this, does this have anything to do with the design of the tech itself? As in one of the common critiques that you'll see around Cuba, Occupy, AOC, is that the end state is just retweets. The end state is yep. just, you know, posting to post. <laughs> right. And like, it's like, as you're pointing out, I was like, actually, posting doesn't translate to anything um, if you actually want to get something done. But that's not what the actual incentive is. So as somebody who played that small role, right. as what you say, um, in crafting this tech, w does the design itself have anything to do with the actual end result? Dude, I was just there to monetize the eyeballs, man. I, I don't know what the hell was going on in feed. <laughs> I was very downstream at what was going on in Facebook. Um, I, I don't know. I, there, no, there's, as far as I know, there's no malicious plot to like undo Western civilization. At Facebook, I, don't, I don't mean intentional. I'm saying in terms of the way that it is designed itself, is just, you know, maybe because of a confluence of events. Maybe just because somebody just made a decision one way. Does it lead to different outcomes or more what I'm getting at is, is it inevitableness that it was always going to turn out this way? Uh, I, I think, I, I forget who tweeted it. Maybe it was Benedict Evans who said, um, you know, the internet makes smart people smarter and dumb people dumber, right? And so you literally go into the internet and you go down one of two hallways, right? Because I think, again, if, if you look at a lot of techies, right? Like, again, getting back to the textual oral divide, it's weird that we have like, computer code is the most textual thing there is. Like literally machines can like, repeatedly read it. It's, and so we've got people who live their heads in code and screens to create code for people who are like watching TikTok videos and like couldn't read 500 pages without looking at their phone, right? Who are obviously outside of the textual world. So it, it just seems like an odd polarizing split to me in that, again, I think here the example is getting a little bit over, overtaxed, but you know, you've got these computer techies who are like the monks in the scriptoria <laughs> who are literally copying and creating code. And you've got peasants who literally just can't read anything and stare at stained glass. It's got cute little stories in the church and that's it. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the extent of their intellectual world. I don't know if we're quite returning to that world, but it, it, I don't know, it kind of feels like that a little bit. Jacob, thank you for joining us, we're just going to kind of uh, dive into things. So for those of you, in, for those in the audience who have not listened to every single thing we do, have not watched the segments and the episodes, can you just uh, start us off by articulating your thesis around technology, foreign policy, 21st century? Sure. So I started writing a book that I just published from the vantage point of having worked at a tech company and seeing how the tech industry in Silicon Valley was increasingly being caught in the crosshairs of geopolitics. That's why I decided to write the book. Increasingly, tech companies are being viewed and treated as proxies and target of geopolitical power. And fundamentally, when we look at broader geopolitical dynamics at work with the US and with China, it's increasingly shaping the norms and global governance around the world and 
uh, ultimately impairing the future of democracy. One of the things that I watched with great interest is when I first got started getting interested in this was it didn't seem that anybody had really even given thought to the question of China. Um, it was an assumption that the there was a single system that could work across the globe. Yes, it was unfortunate, you know, that Google or Facebook was not allowed in China, but in general, there wasn't thought being given to it. How would you describe like evolving thinking within Silicon Valley? And obviously, you know, you wrote your book in order to contribute to that. Where they start? Where did they have to start grappling with China itself, and then the broader geopolitical questions around it? So the predominant ethos in the tech industry for a long time was reflective of uh, a larger school of thought that emanated out of Washington, which was that as China would grow freer, it would ultimately become richer, and therefore, as a country, we didn't really have to invest that many efforts in trying to proactively encourage political liberalization. Silicon Valley tacitly uh, embraced that approach because it's historically a very idealistic culture, and it's benefited from a mostly open and free internet. So I think in Silicon Valley, people had, had cognitively become used to this idea that we live in a global world, uh, boundaries matter less and less. There were so many thinkers in the tech industry that were espousing you know, schools of thought that companies are almost becoming quasi-sovereigns now. Uh, Denmark even went as far as appointing an ambassador to the internet, quote unquote, to represent Denmark, the country, to tech companies. But this was just reflective of a broader pattern of behavior where tech companies increasingly start to see the world as very global and detached from uh, geographic political boundaries. And that was fine when the world was basically run by a single country and America was not challenged around the world. But obviously now with the rise of China, uh, economically and increasingly politically, uh, that has changed very, very quickly. And obviously in 2010, most technology content platforms in the US have been banned in China. So I think year by year, tech companies have been bruised by uh, the increasing degree of uh, repression, political repression in China. And so now there is a bit of an awakening taking place uh, among a lot of software companies that have been restricted in China. And I think a lot of hardware companies that have been allowed to continue doing business in China are in a very uncomfortable position of trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that they have invested billions of dollars in very, very expensive supply chains that are tied up there and uh, that they're reliant on. Something I like talking, speaking with authors a bit deeper into the book tour. Um, our episode came out the day of book launch. What has been the, re what, what's just been the reaction to your work? You're, you're, you're you know, you're literally going coast to coast. You were, you know, at Milken um, earlier in the week. You're, you're here in Miami, home base, obviously. But just what, what has been the broad reaction? Because, you know, you're, you're Pete Buttigieg alum. You're not, this isn't 2015 where, the, where everything we're saying here would be read as just purely right wing or just sort of outside the bounds of common discourse. Just would love to hear about how you'd reflect upon the reaction. I've approached a lot of this, of this issue through the prism of my personal experience of uh, my father being from Ohio. My grandfather worked at a Jeep factory. Pete Buttigieg is from Indiana. So, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about what has been the real world impact of the Sino-American relationship. And I think that part of what has caused so much popular anger around this issue and why it's become such an important issue for a lot of people 
is uh, that the impact has been uh, very, very negative for a lot of people. And I think we need to be honest about that. And I think people are going to be very frustrated um, if, you know, they their political leaders don't uh, reflect, you know, that uh, their sources of, of resentment. If you just look at the facts, there have been 66,000 manufacturing plants that have closed down from 2000 to 2010. 2.5 million manufacturing jobs evaporated. China is the number one producer of illicit flows of fentanyl. It shares a uh, it shares a border with 14 countries and has more border disputes than the number of countries that it actually has a border with, 17 countries. Uh, it's If you care about the environment, it's the worst polluter in the world. If you care about human rights, it's engaging in genocide. So it has offended just about so many aspects of American society so comprehensively that I think that is the primary reason why now you're seeing 81% of American, according to Pew Research, that are demanding across party lines a much stronger position on China. And I think people are rightfully appalled when they see China trying to export its censorship norms through the NBA and through Hollywood uh, in our country, in our information environment. I think that that really was a big wake up call for people. The real question, Jacob, and and this is where you know would appreciate your appreciate your forward looking is how do we deal with it? Because you pointed out the hardware. I mean, look, uh, you know, my heart would say, let's get out, you know, no more. But I'm not, you know, look, Apple phones are still have to be produced. Um, there are still hundreds of billions of dollars of supply chain infrastructure that remains in China. If not in China, then China has like double outsourced it to Vietnam, but they're the main supply vendor um, who controls that relationship. How and what boundaries should we draw in our in our tech, technological relationship with China? Um, should we be values first? Should we be pragmatic? And how do we balance the two? So I'll divide uh, that response into, you know, I talk a lot in my book about the gray war, which refers to gray zone conflict, which is basically a geopolitical conflict that's beneath the conventional threshold of war that includes things like cyber attacks, economic sanctions, and, and then talk a little bit more about conventional warfare. Um, on the gray war side, as I talk and as I discuss in my book, the biggest uh, sources of leverage that uh, China has and exerts internationally are through the back doors that it inserts in information infrastructure, namely through Huawei and ZTE that it exports around the world. Uh, then there is the supply chain side, which is networks that build networks. China has is the factory floor of the world. And if it cuts off our companies from access to supply chains, that's a really big problem. So we need on the gray war side to be thinking about how do we deglobalize China's reach in information infrastructure? Because ultimately, if China is able to export its internet infrastructure to other countries, you could only think about the impact on the national sovereignty of countries if it's able to know all the dirty secrets of every judge, every politician, all the sexual escapades, all the financial dealings, all the things that people encounter in their everyday lives uh, of other countries, especially smaller countries that don't really have the political muscle to resist that kind of coercion. On the supply chain side, I think Japan has followed an interesting model, which is basically to pay companies to reshore outside of China. Frankly, I think we need to have a uh, industry 
public sector, you know, very, very accelerated debate about what would be the most expeditious way to get our most critical supply chains outside of China. And I think part of that involves doing the legwork of figuring out what are the bucket of goods where that aren't critical to national security and we don't care where it comes from. Uh, what are the bucket of goods that are so critical that they need to be made here? And what are the bucket of goods that uh, are important but can be made in some, in some sort of allied space? Yeah. And so there's a lot of public policy thinking that needs to go into that. And then on the conventional warfare side, um, we have never been so close in most of our lifetimes to uh, a conventional confrontation between great powers than we are today in the South China Sea. If you look at the facts on the ground with the buildup of 350 ships, 250 missile silos, uh, the launch of a hypersonic missile that caught our Intel community off guard. I've been a very big proponent of substantially beefing up our deterrence because ultimately we have had a policy of engagement with China for many, many years. And, you know, it's the old Winston Churchill line that being unprepared and inoffensive with your adversaries is actually going to be a disservice to peace. If you really want peace, you want to be sufficiently prepared where you're opponent is going to be a rational actor and is not going to try to wage a war on you because they don't think that they're going to win. And so ultimately, if they think that this is going to be an easy takeover of Taiwan, they're going to do it because Xi Jinping has made it a promise. If they don't think that it's going to be easy and successful, they're going to find some way of spinning it at home for why they should delay it. And so we need to change that equation very quickly. Now that we've gotten to the 81% number you refer, I think a huge part of this project broadly has to be the what's next question. And before the even what's next question, the question becomes, what does the US want from China? What does the US want China to look like? Because if you listen to the CCP, there's this broad narrative about they want to return to the century of humiliation, they want us to be kept down, they're trying to contain us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think we should directionally want from China? I think we need to, there are a lot of structural changes that need to come out of the CCP for there to be an exit ramp and an, uh, an easing of relations. I think so long as China engages in behavior where they have basically made the US their adversary in their domestic propaganda and whipping up nationalism at home uh, and justifying all kinds of aggressive behavior abroad. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but uh, they just, you know, carried out this expansive information operation claiming that COVID came from lobsters from Maine. Uh, so Points for creativity. You know, that one's pretty good. You just have to ask yourself, uh, we can have the best intentions. We can want to be, we can decide to, that we want to be friends with China, but ultimately if they're not going to meet us at the altar, if you're dealing with someone that doesn't want to be friends with you, you're not going to go very far. And peace is inherently a two-way street. It, it, it's not going to be achieved by, by either if it's not uh, attempted by both. And so, unfortunately, I think that with Xi Jinping, you're dealing with a person that has made it his rallying cry uh, to be decidedly anti-American. And so he's 68 years old. I think we're just going to have to outlast him and, um, you know, see who comes after him. It's, you know, I was recently reading a quote, I think from John Mearsheimer, where he said that the greatest strategic blunder in world history will be the U.S. empowerment of its peer competitor on the global stage. And in fact, the co-optation of the elite of that country, who in many ways still wants and believes in that policy of engagement 
also it happens to benefit them to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. I'm curious, um, given that parameter that we have, despite the fact we just had a panel about governance, um, you know, 81% of the population can believe anything, but foreign policy is inherently an elite discipline. And so even within this discipline, despite, you know, some of the critics online who think that there is some broad consensus around strategic deterrence against China, I would say that that is not the case whatsoever. So what are, what do you think is the current elite consensus around China, Jacob? Because as Marshall was saying, let's say five, 2015, what you were talking about with fentanyl, I mean, that was literally considered a right-wing talking point, even though it, you know it's true. Um, where do, would you say that we are in terms of our, the people actually in charge where are they falling on these things? So I, th I find that the f current foreign policy debate often boils down to, uh, you know, back like six years ago, the debate was if you were hawkish on China or if you were just, you know, outspokenly in favor of quote unquote engagement, uh, which was basically code for just, you know, pursuing a bunch of other priorities um, uh, and not prioritizing any domestic issue. Uh, today, Everyone is sort of paying lip service to the idea of competition, quote unquote. But uh, where the, the 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 policy cleavage comes in is as soon as people start talking about competition, that is a very different type of nomenclature than people that are simply saying that we are in a cold war with China. And the reason is that you can afford to lose a competition, and a competition implies that you are competing with someone on a level playing field. It's, you know, it's like a game of tennis and ultimately, you know, it's your survival isn't really on the line. The people that say that we're in a cold war acknowledge this is an existential issue that should be prioritized above every other uh, foreign and domestic policy initiative. And what's at stake is the political survival of the liberal order. And so ultimately, when people talk about competition, the way that you know, American foreign policy towards China gets implemented looks very, very different than, you know, policy thinkers that embrace a Cold War nomenclature. And uh, just an extra word on that note, the expression Cold War scares a lot of people because, you know, we're sick of war as a country and a lot of we've just come out of Afghanistan. And uh, but unfortunately, you know, we might be tired of wars, but wars may not be tired of us. And it's, you know, during the, if you look back at history during the inner war period, you had what's, what I find concerning is that you had a very similar situation in Britain and France that were very, very uh, fatigued of war. They didn't want to hear anything about another great war. They were desperate to avoid another conflict. Uh, they had basically dismantled their, their military to, because of uh, high debt levels that they had run during World War I. And as a result, that produced the policy of, of, you know, the now infamous appeasement policy where Chamberlain famously said, oh, if only we could sit at a table with the Germans and, you know, figure out a grand bargain. I'm sure we could uh, find a way to satisfy them. That approach sometimes, you know, dialing back to my initial point, can actually invite the very kind of conflict that you're looking to avoid. And sometimes it's just, it's really, really important to not let a, uh, blow to the kind, uh, you know, not let our own self-confidence be sufficiently weakened that we approach the China challenge by trying to avoid, uh, by being so averse to confrontation. I think we need to stand on principle and be very, very realistic about the motives and capabilities that the Chinese government has showcased and 
uh, and go from there. You know, let's pick up the appeasement metaphor in a way that we don't typically engage around, which is it's ridiculous to assume that there's going to be this big meeting in Macau between, you know, she and Biden where everything's just worked out. But if we're looking at a world where there isn't war, that will involve some type of tacit grand bargain. So you're not searching for literally those words, but there will be some type of what's consensus is a better word. It seems as if from the American side, we've, we've conceded Hong Kong. Um, no one, despite what crazy online people say, is proposing arming Uyghurs in Western China. Um, regime change as a concept is just not discussed anymore. No one takes that particularly seriously, uh, especially in the affirmative sense. What would a broader, what, so then what would a bigger bargain moving, like what other things would the US do you think be prepared, rightly or wrongly, be prepared to give up or concede on? And what things do you think the Chinese would specifically have to concede on to? Well, I think one of the big dangers, especially as we approach, um, you know, end of next week, there's going to be COP26. So we're going to see Greta Thunberg on TV and all, all world leaders calling, you know, call, making a lot of uh, declarations on climate change. Um, climate change is an important issue that governments, that all governments should take seriously because we all share the same planet. It should not be used as a bargaining chip to uh, give China a free pass on committing genocide. And the, the risk from a U.S. government policy standpoint is that that is going to be trying to get the Chinese at the table to broker a deal on climate change uh, is going to be used as a reason to basically look the other way on all of our all uh, every single one of our other priorities, whether it's manufacturing, unfair trade practices, um, you know, human rights abuses, and and that has been a perennial problem that has that was the case during the Obama years is still the case today, and unfortunately there were reports that you know our special envoy John Kerry had did uh, some backdoor lobbying with the House, for example, to uh, avoid official condemnation of Uyghurs. Um, but this was, I mean, this was something that a lot of people in the foreign policy community predicted. Uh, there was an article in the Atlantic during the transition that basically highlighted the risk that John Kerry would try running his own foreign policy. Um, so I think th these are issues are hot debates in the foreign policy community, rightly so. And I think that ultimately, because Xi Jinping I don't think is someone that is looking for a grand bargain at this point. I think the solution is going to be more about reaching an equilibrium more than getting a deal with him. You know, it's interesting. I want to pick this up because the realignment started as a podcast because we were interested in debates, like specifically within the Republican Party. But let's let's talk about the Democratic Party then, because you know we we have mutual friends who are China hawks in the Biden administration who will tell you off the record that like, oh yeah, like we are worried about like a, a fake climate bargain too. So can you do, cause so this isn't, this isn't me just trying to be like unfair here. Could you talk about the debate within, like also like we're all like younger millennials here at a generational level. How are these debates breaking down within the party as you see this? Well, you have, um, so I find that there is partly a generational dynamic at work where a lot of the people that were architects of the, you know, more accommodationist policies are very, very resistant to having a stronger stance on China. There is a reflexive resistance to calling it a Cold War, which I think is ultimately uh, a bad decision because, 
you know, in the startup, in the in the tech industry and in, in the startup ecosystem, uh, people will often say that as a startup, you need to have first principles and you need to be clear about what your mission is and what you're optimizing for. And if you're trying to optimize for 15 different things, you're going to fail. And I think unless you are plain spoken and clear and you have a mission that your users, in this case, U.S. citizens understand, you're going to have a lot of confusion about what the priority of the day should be. And ultimately, you're not going to reach to uh, delivering results on what you're trying to optimize for. And so I think that it would be a huge service to uh, our foreign policy establishment to just call it for what it is. And uh, so to, and to answer your initial question, I think part of it is generational and part of it is also, uh, I think it's mostly generational, actually, because even people on, you know, the, the, the very, very base of the party, you have Elizabeth Warren that's actually very critical of China. And uh, a lot of people that, um, you know, are affiliated with unions are resent the fact that China has been uh, such a... Uh, uh, so responsible for deindustrialization in the U.S. Let's take our leftist critics at the best faith. Um, whenever they talk about your open embrace or any all, my open embrace of a Cold War mindset, whenever it comes to China, they'll point to all of the atrocities of the Cold War, the mistakes of the Cold War. Why is it that you're comfortable using that type of language? And what do you make of, once again, their best faith critique, which would be a Cold War mindset, Jacob, the, you know, arming the South China Sea, who really cares about Taiwan anyway? Are you really, you know, willing to let working class men and women die on the shores of Taiwan um, because of a quote unquote principle? How do you engage with the best faith? faith uh, version of that critique? There's no doubt that the Cold War strategy was carried out by administrations of both, both parties and the record isn't perfect. But I think it's only fair to say that, you know, to ask yourself, what strategy will get you peace if what you're trying to avoid is a war? And if you're really going to compare the results, let's compare the results to the alternative to a Cold War policy, which is accommodation. And the record of when we have had uh, an accommodationist policy towards a uh, revanchist autocratic great power is not exactly a great record because that is what led to a actual world war. So I think if you're trying to get peace, it's kind of a, a false friend to say that accommodation is going to deliver that for you. I think the last question I'll put forward before we get to the um, audience can basically would basically be this. How do you, once again, we, we were talking beforehand, we weren't responding to the mean substacks and YouTube pages about our episode, but we will talk about them here behind their backs. Something they were also just pushing on is this idea that like the American like corporate military industrial complex elite would benefit from any type of conflict with China. But it seems to be the lesson from the Trump era was these cleavages really were based around Wall Street finance, it's the NBA, I, I define that as like an elite run institution. They are not looking for conflict. So how, how, do you, how do you see the elite industry level discourse actually breaking down? So it's interesting because you're right that um, Hollywood and Wall Street have up until this point been the two biggest industry constituencies that have been resistant to a more hawkish stance towards China. But frankly, I think the reason is that Hollywood sells movies in China and Wall Street is going to be continue is going to continue to favor 
a soft approach towards China as long as China pays their banking fees. China happened to wipe out $3 trillion in value uh, for investors in its most recent round of crackdowns. And the chief investment officer at Guggenheim Partners called China uninvestable at this point. So I think you're seeing that even within Wall Street, you're starting to have a bit of a realization that China is not going to be a great asset class for you. And ultimately, you have to be incredibly naive to think that if you are investing $100 billion in China, which is what Blackstone you know, recently announced, and if there is an escalation of tensions between the US and China in the next two years, which Taiwan believes there will be, uh, your assets are not going to be liquid. I mean, they're probably going to get frozen. They might get nationalized. You're not going to get them out of the country. So I think a lot of investors are starting to think about finding way, an exit strategy uh, from China at this point. So this is Mike Solana, everyone. Um, Mike is great. Let's follow the model we just did with Antonio by starting with your Substack. Um, we had Mike on the podcast, and I subscribed to do some background research. But I keep subscribing because it's actually a really great Substack. And uh, thank you. That's a good way to Pirate start. Wires. You guys should all subscribe. Link in bio. Tell us about pirate. Yeah, so like, let's tell us about pirate wires. Like, what when when you when you create basically a lot of people in the venture tech space like tweet a lot. There's lots of big brain thoughts to be given around. You've taken that to the next level and you actually write. That's a, that's a decision you're making, obviously, um, which takes a lot of work. Like, what what are you trying to say with pirate wires? Um, maybe it's it's less about like what. I'm trying to say than what I was trying to do, which as you mentioned was to, I think like further contextualize what I was saying on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, Twitter is this like crazy kind of war, it's like an intellectual war space. It's, it's insane and I think to survive in that world and to be successful in that world, you end up having to um, dumb, not dumb down, but it's, you're, you're weaponizing small little thoughts and like you're, you're always open to like attack and you never really have a chance to flesh out an idea. And with writing, um, I've always been, a I mean, not always been, a I've been writing for a long time, but I've never been writing non like this kind of writing. I've never been doing just, you know, here are my opinions sort of writing. Um, when I was younger, I thought that that would, uh, permanently color my fiction, which is what I actually wanted to do was write fiction. And, um, and so I didn't do it. I just like kept away from politics and things. I was like, I don't want to, you know, be associated with that. Um, in 2020 got to a point where I was like, I just like have to say even more than I was saying on Twitter. And, uh, and it was just to do that. It was, it was to give, it was to remind people like, okay, yeah, I'm fighting for ideas on, on Twitter, but like, here's like the long form version of that. And the topics tend to be, it's like tech, uh, is where it started. It's like tech politics, culture, and specifically a counter voice to the dominant tech press narrative, which, um, you guys have talked a little bit without Antonio before, but that's kind of how I see myself in the space is, um, a voice sort of for, uh, for the industry. And I criticize it 
all the time, but I criticize it from a place of like, I'm on its side. I'm, I work within it. I see the good of it. And when I criticize it, it's because I think it could be better and like, here are the ways to make it better. Um, yeah, I guess that's roughly it. I think one important thing there is it's fascinating to me how much we reference Twitter and it's just, you know, to Antonio's point, how ingrained it is in our entire understanding of politics, culture, everything. So to that point, why was it important for you um, to engage in these battles on Twitter, the medium itself? Like, why did you feel that the extension of that was so important that you had to put even deeper thought to it, right? Because to Antonio's point, it was meant to just be like, make a stupid joke or like Kanye's like eating a burger in 2008. Right. Uh, I disagree with a lot of what you guys were talking about before, actually. So um, nice. for, for, first of all, the idea that uh, the idea that Ocasio-Cortez isn't, successful is insane to me. She controls the Democratic Party. She controls the political culture. And uh, Madison Cawthorn, or, or he, I was like, that's not an apt comparison, right? Like, I think, I think Ocasio is uniquely charismatic and incredible at navigating the internet. And Madison Cawthorn is, he's really hot. Like, that's, that's like the main <laughs> thing that's happening with him. And he's young. And like, that's, that's it. She's totally different. And she is just a version of what we already saw. We just saw Trump. He posted his way to the presidency. So the idea that you can't do that is, to me, like really crazy. And then, and then in terms of like the Twitter thing, I linked to like the Chappelle thing where it was like, oh, well, like that didn't matter. And we only talked about that for, we talked about that. We've been talking about Chappelle for five weeks and, and Afghanistan for two. It's like, well, maybe because the Chappelle thing is more important. And that's because pop culture determines our entire reality. That's what we live inside of. And the Chappelle thing, we're not just talking about dumb jokes. We're talking about the future that we're going to be existing in as Americans day to day for the next five to 10 years. That's why people are mad. They're mad because they feel like they can't say anything and they don't understand why he's being attacked. And they're like, am I going to be attacked? And that's, that's actually affecting our life in a way that Afghanistan never did, which is another problem. And it is a problem, but that's just the truth is Afghanistan didn't impact the average American. And the Chappelle thing, I think, really does. Huh. Uh, and Twitter is important because that's where all of this stuff happens. Like, it all does seem stupid. It seems cartoonish and ridiculous. And you are tweeting about nonsense um, some of the time, but that it is like the live wire of culture. That is like where everything begins. You are talking about dumb shit on Twitter and then a week later it's on the view. And you know, like that's just, that is, that's the life cycle. Yeah. So for me, it's important to be there because that's where everything is happening. So what I appreciate about what you just said around pushing a counter narrative is that unlike many critics, cause I don't want to turn this into too much of a, what's dunk on the New York times fest you are still pushing something counter. So it's not merely that you're saying, oh, like it's fake news or, oh, Taylor Lorenz is bad. You're saying, here is this other thing I would like to put forward. So let's focus on what narrative you are trying, not, not in a bad way, right? but what, what, what story are you trying to tell about the tech industry? Are you trying to tell about our politics and culture right now? Okay, so um, there are a lot of things. I think probably the, 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 like the thing that goes, cuts through all of them is um, we have to be more accountable. We are accountable for our own reality. Uh, and so one thing I talk a lot about separate from the New York Times, want to get away from that and, se and separate from even tech would be local politics um, and particularly in the context of San Francisco, which is where I live about half the time now. Um, that's his, but it's my home. San Francisco, I still consider my home. Miami, I, I come to for work. Um, the reason San Francisco is so fucked up is because the average person doesn't even know who their 
supervisor is. They don't know who their political representatives are. Um, specifically in the legislature, so the, our board of super, the way SF works quickly, uh, there are 11 supervisors and that's our legislative branch. And then you have the mayor who's the sort of a really weak executive. So the board of supervisors, no one knows even what their names are, their own. You have one depending on what your region is. Like mine's Dean Preston, he's an actual communist. Um, and which is crazy because it's like, I'm not even, like I hate communism, but I'm, I'm like, why are we even talking about it? Like we're in San Francisco, we should be talking about like why the trains aren't running or why like there's like this crazy fentanyl addiction problem like what does it have to do with communism nothing but here we are like LARPing uh the cold war um but that is something where like people have this sense of like helplessness and uh I, I want to be like okay well smart people have to get involved here and learn first of all who their board of supervisors are and then maybe run and be a part of that um and the way that intersects with tech is like the technology industry really, uh, I think has been working on really amazing things for a long time, but has not engaged so much with the real world. And, and in a way, I think that's like the San Francisco problem is like you have all these technologists with all of this money and the city hates them. Um, but it's because they haven't really been a part of it. It's like they've been sort of separate from it. And had we involved ourselves much earlier uh, maybe things would be different. Something I'm curious about, we just did a event with Peter Thiel and a question that I asked him was about this idea of exit versus voice. So saying something versus like leaving. I'm, I'm curious, the obvious Twitter narrative around the Bay Area has been lots of very wealthy, but also very influential people leaving, exiting the different locales, New York City, Austin, Miami, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't really matter where they go. You have Elon Musk, leaving, I think, for more complicated reasons than a really bad tweet from an elected official, but that always plays into the narrative. What effect do you think the very high-profile exits have had on the political dynamic you're describing? Because to your point, if you're saying the flaw was the tech did not engage enough, aka through voice in the process, does the exits that have happened, do they impact um, the actual dynamic and the players who are still there? I don't think they really do. I, I think that the, among the people in local politics, so the, one of the big problems that we have in local politics is it's like a different class of people almost. It's like this weird little insular game where for decades, no one has paid attention to them in most cities in America. And it's like that they have their own world. They're not even thinking about, like the Elon Musk thing, that crossed Lorena's radar only because everyone was mentioning her on Twitter. That's the only reason. It was like this flood of of, uh, of mentions that she got. And so she kind of dipped back into the conversation. But other than that, she doesn't care that Elon leaves. They're, they're not thinking about complex problems. This is like our local politicians are truly the intellectual D team of America. We just, everyone else ignored it. And those are the people that you get and they like power. And it's like, that's what's going on. In terms of the exit versus voice thing, um, I'm gonna take this in like a slightly different direction. Uh, I think it's, I, it frustrates me this conversation because I, I think that um, we've not even tried voice. And I think exit eventually is maybe something important. Um, and I might leave San Francisco myself if I don't see a future for myself there. However, like no one has really, really, really put in the effort to fix it yet. And so I, it's hard for me to say like, oh, throw my hands up, it's over, we tried, it's, it's unwinnable. Like I've lived there for 10 years and I've never seen a compelling candidate ever, who not one, who I was like, yes, that's the person. That person's saying it. Like I want to at least give it a try and see if they can win. We didn't do that. No one in tech has 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 sent someone up who's 
who's who's interesting. No one in the city has sent someone up who's interesting. And so like once that happens, once you see these candidates who run uh, on a sort of more reasonable platform, they want uh, action-oriented, problem-sort-of-solving type thing. So the exa- uh, one example would be homelessness. The problem is people are sleeping outside. The solution is can, only acceptable solution is a world where that does not exist anymore. That problem is gone. Everybody has a bed. The end solved. Um, unless we, until I see people run on that with that kind of thinking and lose, then it's like I don't know why we're even talking about leaving. So here's what I'm curious around: how you reconcile this want for local politics, which I also want, but also with almost what is a victory of tech, which was the great flattening of speech, of making it so that you know people in New York City can debate whether Walgreens in San Francisco is closing because of crime or not, and everybody has all sorts of takes. I haven't even been to San Francisco in two years, and I feel like I know everything about every crime that happens there. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, not necessarily a bad thing. Now I know it probably shouldn't go, or at least not go to certain places. So uh, how do you reconcile that with the great victory of technology, the flattening of you know all of that, but also it is the reason why your whoever local person is is like I'm a communist because he can post his way or at least solicit donations also online from people who want to support that type of politics even in a place where they don't live. I'm just curious how you think about that. I disagree with I agree with both of those points. How do they? How do they? Well, conf- just that the uh, the local that it is very difficult to have a return to local politics in a hyper-nationalized environment and that it would make it so that the all of politics, and, and you see this in many, many different locales, state governors and more, will become around hyper-national issues because of how technology yeah, it's like a money-raising thing, too, when they talk right. about these things. But exactly. I, don't, I don't know the com- – like that one, I don't know how much money he's raising off of those things nationally. Uh, but, for, but our DA, for example, is raising off of a national – the nationalization yes. of the, the – the, our district attorney is like a sort of pro-crime district attorney. And that's like – there's like a national movement towards that. And uh, and so he uh, he raises money off of like the, the nationalization of politics. That's a, a, a broader problem. I, I mean I, I suppose tech has – certainly tech has, has uh, amplified that. Trend, but that seems like a longer trend than even just tech. And um, I don't know that I have a solution for it other than what I try to do, which is just to make it um, sexier to care about local problems, I guess. Like I try to write about them in a fun way and I try to like create characters in the city who, this is how I think about the world, honestly. So I'm really just putting in t- onto the page like my sort of melodramatic approach to reality. <laughs> and um, And if that can get people excited about those issues, then that's. I mean, that's maybe one approach. The fact that that people across the country know about like Lorena Gonzalez and uh, and like like Chesa Bowden and things like this. I mean, I do think to a certain extent that's because of this approach. Like, who was who knew any of these? I mean, what other city actually is like this? Um, I do. I think San Francisco right now is swinging way above its weight, um, and I think that's because of people on Twitter writing about it in this way. Yeah. I'm curious, um, as someone who's interested in local political reform, what lessons or just general thoughts you have uh, on the results of the California recall election? Because this was interesting for me because I first, once again, to your point about how these narratives, I first started thinking about it more because like on on the All In podcast, you know, Jason, David, David, um, and Shamath, like they're, they're, they're talking about, Hey, like maybe Shamath will run. Gavin Newsom is doing these things that are wrong. And Shamath's like kind of a Democrat. So, you know, that's like different. Uh, yeah, that was a side swipe, but different, different conversation we could have. Um, uh, but the, the, the point is, 
it then evolved into Larry Elder, which is like a very, he's like, I know he's libertarian, but he's operationally like a Republican in the California sense. So how, how do you just think about the broad arc of what happened and what lessons local or even state-based reformers should take from that experience? I'm glad the recall failed. And that's because, so I think that uh, Larry Elder, I don't think was nearly as insane as, as people said. Uh, he really just does this stupid libertarian thing, which is like he is he refuses to not be principled on certain issues that are crazy. So like Rand Paul famously not wanting to take an issue on like whether black people should be allowed in a restaurant. I don't know if you guys remember this. Like this is where he was like, he was like clear. It was, it was just like, just say yes. Like, yes, everyone's allowed in the restaurant. Like move on. Like you're never going to have an intellectual conversation about this. That's like a lot of what Larry Elder was trying to do. Like he was trying to have these weird intellectual conversations about things that just don't map that way and he's just not really a politician but he's running now uh, I think that had he won he would have made political change in California completely impossible because he would have given the left a new bogeyman and that would have been really bad in San Francisco it would have made any change truly impossible because they would have been like all these Larry Elder Republicans are running and blah, blah, blah. And we have recall elections right now that are going through that are actually matter. Like I, I think I think Newsom is bad, but really just a bimbo. And like, he's not, I don't think he's trying to destroy the, the state. He just doesn't think much about it. And he's part of this sort of old mold of Democrats that it's like they're running out of steam. And he didn't do anything deserving of a recall, I think. Like, I, I think the recall itself probably shouldn't even exist like this. I think it's way too easy yeah, to, I was, I was ask, to recall yeah. someone. I think it's, I think it is a little bit. It feels off, frankly. It's like great because it tends to hit people who I don't like in California because there are no, they're all like crazy leftists usually. But he wasn't really that. And then the way it, the way the, the recall to me matters is like in the context of the DA who's not prosecuting, and that's your job. And people thought you were going to prosecute, and you're not. You should be recalled. The Board of Ed that that would not open schools. It's like okay, well, that's your job, and like you're not doing it. Goodbye. Um, I think that had yeah had Newsom won, it would have been really bad for us. And then the separate thing uh, in terms of like the all-in pod and stuff like that is, I think that if people are going to say they're going to run or flirt with that at all, like they should take that seriously. I, I think that when you when you talk about it and then you don't or don't even take it seriously, it kind of demeans the entire thing. And a big problem that we're facing is people don't find these positions attractive. Like there's no status associated with there's no money associated with politics. Um, even at the highest level, there's there's no uh, there's a little bit of status associated with it at the, the national level. There's no status associated with it at the uh, uh, at the local level, and then there's a massive opportunity cost. So to get someone into that is already a hard, challenging thing. And then when you make it all a sort of joke, um, and I love those guys, but I didn't like that thing very much. Yeah, so I'm curious then, like, what does a successful technologist engagement with local politics look like? Is it what you're doing by, you know, making it cool to, like, care about local politics, create these characters, get engaged, get engaged with the recall? Like, and then, yeah, like, what's the, what's the model? I don't, so... I don't want to take. I got, we, there's been no success so far, so I don't want. I don't want to be like. <laughs> to be yes, fair. this is the way forward. <laughs> like, shit post your way to the top. <laughs> I like. I in San Francisco, it's like bleak, right? It's like pretty much as bad as it could possibly be. Um, I, I do think these recall elections are interesting, um, and if 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 Chesa and the Board of Ed are removed. And then you see a couple new sort of more reasonable candidates in 2022 for board of supervisors. That to me says there's 
a path forward, which is just, I mean, and, and it has to be about getting people locally informed and excited. And it, it just sounds so boring. Like, even while I'm saying it myself, I'm like, this is boring. Like, should we move on? Like, I don't know if this is like a great topic, <laughs> right. but that's like, an, we, but that is like, I drove cross country from San Francisco um, to Nashville, uh, the summer of the pandemic. And it, uh, the first summer of the pandemic. And <laughs> it, it was like, oh wow, like every city is shitty actually. Yeah. So there was this whole conversation about what, where should we move? Where should we bring tech? And it's like, well, they're, they're all pretty bad. They all have problems. I mean, we're in like sort of positive Miami space right now, but it's like, I mean, if you drive around Miami, there are homeless people everywhere. The flooding is insane. Like just yeah, like on a, the way a here. light yeah. drizzle and you're, have, you're like, you better have a boat. Like, good luck. <laughs> like, I don't know how you're getting around anymore. Like there are problems in every single city in the country. There's no one, there's no city that's like, oh, that's the way that we should clearly do things. And, um, uh, and so I, I don't know. I, maybe things have to break. So I don't know what it takes for people to realize that your problems are not Donald Trump. Your problem is the person that you didn't even pay attention to when you voted for them uh, in November who runs like your local city hall. Um, but I, I, all I do know is that we are getting closer in San Francisco. And I think San Francisco is closer than probably any other city other than New York, which is interesting, right? Because I mean, we talk about how bad San Francisco is. And yet, like, it seems like people there are are a little more aware of their own local politics. Like, I wonder how many people here, I don't know where you all live, but, but like, do you know who your, who your like local representative in city hall is? Like probably maybe this one looks, so, so you definitely do. Uh, this is maybe also like a more political yeah. room, but I, I think that the average person does not. You know, this is interesting because this has been another thing we've been harping on lately, but you referred to like solving homelessness. And I was about to kind of like just push back because I, I don't really like the word solve, but as I'm thinking about your frame, local political issues do actually kind of lend themselves better to here is this problem. Maybe there's like an interesting, not necessarily like partisan way of like getting at them, but I'm just like curious if you could expand more about like the specific problem sets you see. And like you said, this isn't just about like San Francisco, like any city. How do you look at the different problems facing cities and say, Hey, like maybe here are these ways that we could solve them that aren't being approached rationally. Maybe I think this is somewhat related to what Antonio was talking about uh, about before, about how we sort of don't have a compelling vision for the future. Um, one thing I think a lot about is this in the narrower sort of Republican context. Republicans never win locally. And is that really surprising? Republicans don't, what does a Republican city look like? Can you even imagine it? I have no idea what that San means. San Diego, technically. <laughs> like, but it's run by one, but is that a Republican city? Like, like who, I don't know who the, I don't know how legislation works in San Diego, but like, I don't even think that's a Republican city. Like what, if you were to talk to a bunch of the re leading Republicans in the country and be like, can you describe what the, per like describe it? Like, is there public transit in a huge city? Do you believe in that? What does public education look like? I, I think that at a certain level, Republicans just have been like resistant to the concept of what it actually takes to run a city for so long that, that they're like losing not because they're Republican, but because they don't have a plan for governing at all at the, at the city level. And um, I think the Democrats have gotten away with murder because of it, because they're effectively running against no one in every one of these cities. So they don't have, their vision is, it's like crazy shit. It's like, like, let's talk about banana land. I don't even like, like every homeless person. What if we just, ah, that's because they don't really give them much either. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess a good one would be like, I mean, if it should, should people just not be prosecuted if you steal less than $1,000 worth of stuff from a Walgreens or something? Like that's like a version of a democratic thing that's like, oh, that seems crazy. Like maybe we just, maybe crime should be illegal. Like I actually like <laughs> throwing that out there. Um, but, 
but they are allowed to do that because they're running against no one. And I think what, what Republicans need to do is one, just like commit to caring about the city. Like you have to actually have a plan for things like public transit, but then, but then two, it's this, so the, the problem solving thing that I was talking about before with, in the homelessness context is like, there are all sorts of problems like that. So you have a fentanyl problem, you have the homeless problem, you have a public education problem in San Francisco up until very recently, we had a people shitting in the street problem. Um, and that, that it's like, people still talk about that. It has gotten better. Um, but the pro, but the solution there is clearly like, like right now there's a lot of sh human shit on the sidewalk. The the world that I want to be living in is like there's zero. That's the vision. There's none. We just don't do that anymore. Like that's how and so the question needs to be like okay, that's the goal. How do we get to that goal? And it's like, well, uh, it's a combination of two things. One, if you're caught shitting in the street, something needs to be done about you doing that. Like, if you're not crazy, that's like punishment, like, and that should be pretty significant, I think. And if you are crazy, then you should be put in a crazy person place and taken off of the streets and taken care of and given like a nurse or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then the second piece of that puzzle is like, there needs to be a cleaning solution to that, like an immediate sort of like, as soon as someone shits on the street, it's gotta be cleaned up. Um, and we actually have that in San Francisco. And the reason that people saw so much human shit on the streets uh, is because the guy who ran it was completely corrupt. And he's now gonna probably end up in jail and whoever, I don't know who's running it now, but they've, they have been doing a better job of getting to it. But, but the root problem of sh people shitting on the street, that still happens. Like people are still doing that. Um, and so we have to fix that. And every, but every single political issue should be like that. It shouldn't be like, um, okay, uh, with homelessness, what we do instead is, is uh, okay, well, there are lots of homeless people, so here's you know, $650 million a year. Um, you can put it towards, like, let's get some some mobile showers, and we'll do, like, a, like, like a, a work program if people are interested in stopping by and no one comes, and uh, then it's, like, endless bureaucracy, and maybe we should just give money to 85 different nonprofits who are each taking a different piece of it, but actually no one's in charge, and no one, zero people, are focused on the root problem which is there are people sleeping outside. Like the end goal needs to be that not happening anymore. And because that's not the goal, people have this internalized sense of helplessness broadly, I think in America broadly. And, uh, and in the city you see it, it's like in this like microcosm of that. Um, really with the infrastructure bill, you see it. I mean, the infrastructure bill is, it's, it's, a, it was a, the first, I, it's like not the, crazy add-on, but like the, the one that, that should pass, there's like a trillion dollars uh, on what? Like what actually, what has changed about our world at the end of the trillion dollars? So Apollo, the interstate, entire interstate highway system uh, and the Manhattan Project, all three of them combined, adjusted for inflation, cost less than a trillion dollars. Are we going to get any of that from this infrastructure bill? I think we have some char electric charging stations. Where is the rest of the money even going? There's no goal. And I think in, in, if you don't have like a compelling, like let alone forget vision, let's just start with a tangible goal. There should be nuclear power stations across the country. Goal should be zero carbon. And how do you get there? Like th th I don't understand why that kind of thinking is not happening. And that's that's got to be the approach. Vision, sure. But like you, it needs to be a goal-oriented uh, strategy to get to these pieces of the yeah, vision. It completely makes sense. This is where I'm curious, you know, in your own experience, where in, in mine, if you try to bring this up, people 
behind closed doors will say, look, I agree with everything you said, but they're never going to say anything publicly because they don't want to be coded Republican. They don't want to be coded as, oh, well, if I care about people shitting in the streets, then like that makes me like Tucker Carlson on Fox News. And that means that I won't be perceived as a serious person. You clearly have been able to do that without being coded one way or the other by basically just fighting with everybody, which I think is important. Um, but how how would you see that as a model for uh, for people who are in your industry who how can you create a model for for them to be able to do so without being coded explicitly right wing or even left wing you know speaking out against something else it's scary to be yeah. th that that is a fear that i had for a long time of being just labeled something that then takes my identity away from me yep. publicly in a huge way that was um like a paralyzing fear for a long time and the way i got over it was just like and just not caring anymore. Like you, like it's you. Just I, I became so agitated by what I saw that I just had to speak. And I'm like this kind of person anyway, who like needs to talk a lot. And and so like it was only a, like so long of so there was there was only so long before I was gonna have to say something. And um, I don't know that there's a model there. It's just like I wish people. Um, I was at a conference once uh, that I was I was I do this thing for Founders Fund where um, I bring CEOs out to a remote location and we kind of have a conversation about the future, CEOs, writers, thinkers, a few scientists. Um, and uh, I brought Claire Lehman from Quillette yep. out. This is maybe four years ago before I was really killing it. Um, like, like I was not like, not killing it. Like I'm doing great, but I mean like killing ideas, like literally like going out to Twitter to murder ideas. I was very quiet and private, not more so now than I am now. Uh, and I was talking to her about this. I was like, how do, how, what do we do? I mean, the media is crazy and all these people are crazy online and like, I'm scared to talk and like, we shouldn't live in a world where people are scared to talk. And I can't remember verbatim what she told me. It was a longer thing, but the crux of it was like, don't be a coward. Mm -hmm. It was like, to me specifically. <laughs> and I was like, uh, it was like, and she was like very dry about it. And it was just like, like you're, you're, it was, I was like, holy shit. Like I'm like mortified. <laughs> and, and that is like, she's, that's correct. She's out there saying what she thinks and getting attacked for it. And that's the price that you pay. And I think more people need to do that. Ha caveat, I don't think like CEOs should be doing that. I think mm. that, I think it's not safe and they always are hitting me up in my DMs. Like if I am talking about some issue related to tech that they agree with, they'll be like, thank you for saying it. It's, uh, you know, you're voicing what a lot of people are thinking, blah, blah, blah. Um, I wish I could do more. And I'm just like, don't do more because like, I can't be really the platform. I work for Peter Thiel, right? Like there's nothing I've said that's going to get me canceled by him. Um, so it's like, I'll, I'm, I'll talk for all of us. I think there are other people though out there who can, who can say more if you're not super, super exposed in a way that's going to destroy you. And it's something that you know quite a bit about, especially if it's a topic that you know about, then you should talk. And even CEOs do do this in the context. So uh, Ryan Peterson from Flexport just had a whole entire thread on what was going on in Los Angeles with the, uh, with the shipping. And it was brilliant and did and incisive. And it, it like, it, it talked about politics a bit but from a place um, of knowledge and also it, it has a direct link to his company. So of course he should have an opinion about it. And then the same with, uh, you see this with Brian Armstrong at Coinbase all the time. Um, and you've seen it a little bit with Jack Dorsey, uh, though he's like much more careful. Um, but like those things are good. Like jump in then and say what you think then and be courageous then um, because uh, you know, if not you, then who? This is really interesting because, and by, putting uh, CEOs to the side, I suspect you would also put 
politicians in a similar light because to your Rand Paul story, there's a way that you could say, I'm not being a coward. I believe what I believe. I think that um, I'm not a racist, but the Civil Rights Act violates my principles of liberty. So when Rachel Maddow asks me that, I'm going to say what I believe. Um, and I'm a coward if I don't do that. So like how, which I think is like stupid and means you're not very good at politics, but it's a separate matter. So like, what is this line between politics and pragmatism and cowardice and just being smart like how do you how do you think about these well maybe things? the problem is that people believe that at all like maybe because I, I think with politicians you are elected to represent people and so if that's what you believe and the average person doesn't and they don't believe it in a really really sort of pronounced way then i guess thank you for saying it and the average person will vote for someone else uh that didn't really happen so maybe the average person didn't care um so maybe good on him. Maybe he survived. I don't know. Like maybe I'm wrong. You're right. I, I I think that uh, I think that I mean I would like to live in a world where politicians were more honest as well. So maybe I was too judgmental of Rand Paul for thinking perhaps a person should be allowed to kick a black person out of a restaurant. Um, <laughs> I yeah I don't know. It's a, I, you're right. That's a it's an interesting question. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.